The date, March 30th, 1990, the film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. In New York City, mysterious radioactive ooze has mutated four sewer turtles into talking, upright walking, crime-fighting ninjas. The intrepid heroes Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, and Leonardo are trained in the ninjutsu arts by their rat sensei Splinter. When a villainous rogue ninja who is a former pupil of Splinter arrives and spreads lawlessness throughout the city, it's up to the plucky turtles to stop him. And now your hosts Antonio Palacios and Justin Henson are bringing you back to the balcony. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult-Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. And here we are, episode number one. I am your host, Antonio Palacios of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast, and with me, my amazing co-host, my partner in crime, Justin Henson of The Movie Wire. Justin, welcome to episode one. Episode one, this is exciting. So brand new show. We got a lot of cool stuff to talk about, so I cannot wait for this. This is going to be something that Nobody's really listened to us combined on our new show and a topic that I am super passionate about. Both of us are passionate about it. And, you know, I like to think that we do share some listeners. We direct traffic back and forth to each other. We've been doing it for almost two years now. And I think what's going to make this show exciting is that we have very different ways of expressing our critique and criticism of not only movies, but of critics. And that's what this podcast is all about. We are taking you back to the balcony. And by that, we mean we're taking you back to the balcony that Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert sat in for their shows at the movies. And we are just going to review their reviews of all the films that we loved and some that we maybe didn't love of the 70s, 80s, 90s, up until, let's say, the passing of of Gene Siskel. And the end of that era. Because I do like Ebert and Roper, but Siskel and Ebert is what we're here to talk about. Two legends. I mean, nobody can touch the amount of passion they had for film. Nobody can touch the amount of passion they had with each other's opinions. And you're absolutely right. Um, We're not going to agree on everything, but... This is a cool thing about this show is you get about four different opinions on what we thought of the review, what we thought of the movie, and we get a little bit in depth and we get the chance to review two critiquing legends on film. And a lot of these films that we're going to deep dive in the uh, future is ones that a lot of people are familiar with and some aren't. And that is a great thing about Siskel and Ebert is they promoted a lot of unknown movies and people were passionate about the movies they knew about. So there's a lot of good stuff that's going to come from this. And I really think this is going to be an amazing output of just people tuning in and listening to something they haven't listened to before. So to introduce ourselves to new listeners, because I know I'm going to bring some of my current listeners along as you are too. My name is Antonio. I'm the host of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast the Cultworthy Classic, and the Milf and Me podcast, but the Cultworthy is my bread and butter. It's what got me into podcasting. My show is an exposure show, an expose show of films that are either cult favorites or films that were destined to be cult favorites and maybe just haven't hit there yet. Obscure cinema, so to speak. I really don't do reviews. There are some films that I review that you really aren't a huge fan of, but for me, it's more about like, hey, everyone, these films exist. And you can pinpoint certain moments in these films that influenced popular films in pop culture, things that are very relevant today in cinema. While you are a straightforward contemporary film critic on your show, I'd say one of the podcasts that to me channels the energy of the show that we are paying homage to, right? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. So your show, and again, we don't always agree, and that's going to be the beauty of it, but my show is the Movie Wire podcast, and yeah, I do contemporary reviews um, to bring back almost that spirit of the short synopsis review to give us like a little snapshot of what to anticipate when going into a movie. Some of them are great. Some of them are good. Some of them are just crappy. And <laughs> part of that discussion of just having fun with even the bad ones, it makes the experience that much better. And it makes it that much more listenable to actually have some fun with some of the appreciation of the bad ones as well. So it's, it's a lot of fun just nip, just getting into these movies um, and comparing them to your point, some of the older movies too, because older movies influence newer movies. And I think the part that's really going to make this show unique is the fact that we are not necessarily critiquing the films that we are talking about. We are critiquing the critiques. We are going to see whether or not Ebert and Siskel's reviews stand up the test of time. Because here's the one thing that you and I have discussed about critics. Um, I've always made the argument that most critics, especially ones on TV and ones that are doing, you know, the, the ones in the presses, magazines and newspapers, they're not watching films multiple times like I am or even you. You've gone and seen some films several times in the theater. I think you told me you saw Elvis like three or four times, twice in the same day. So I think that really does speak to how well you can critique a film after you've peeled apart the layers of the onion a little bit, where Siskel and Ebert, they screened the films together in their own screening room, and Siskel sat in the back, Ebert sat in the front. They did not talk to each other. They didn't make any cross-comparison of notes until shooting. So I've always felt that that led to a very specific type of critique that was based on first impressions and analysis. And if there's one thing that my show contends is that you have to dissect a film several times before you can really understand what it's trying to say. Yeah, hundred percent. And there is a lot to say about the first reaction of a film because that's your first emotional reaction. And that's what we saw is the raw footage between these two. And there are times, again, they agree, they don't agree. Um, there's even a couple times they've actually changed their review uh, during the show. And to really dissect this uh, movie, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of patience to really try and understand what a movie can do. And in that respect, same with a critic, to kind of understand that way of thinking, because not everybody's going to have the same aspect, the same mm -hmm angle that you're going to view. And that's what's cool about the opinion of the, the critic. And when we go into Siskel and Ebert, we're not always going to review, uh, agree with Siskel and Ebert, but you know, there's some aspects we may, and that's going to be the cool coolness factor to this. And so what we are doing is we are taking turns with films and reviews that they had done over the course of that run of the TV show. One week, I will pick the film and the reviews, and the next week, Justin will pick the reviews. But this one we kind of agreed on to be episode number one, because I feel with the age that we are, we're only a couple years apart, this film really meant a lot to us in the time that it came out, because it was a film that was made for us. It wasn't made for middle-aged dudes who were writing for a newspaper, like the people that we are talking about today who gave us this critique. And that film is 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, directed by Steve Barron. I'm assuming you saw this in the theater. Numerous times in the theater. Numerous times. So, <laughs> you couldn't have been a kid in the 80s and not have seen this film, and let alone not in the theater. Right. I saw it on a field trip. We had a uh, reading kind of challenge every week in school, and I was like a top reader in my class. I was actually reading on a fifth or sixth grade level, and I think I was in third grade when this came out. And so the people who could read the most books and put in the most book reports at the end of the week got like a special prize. Sometimes it was a trip to McDonald's with the other good readers. Sometimes it was a trip to the museum or the library. But on this particular week which was the week after my birthday, 1990, 
they took us to go see Teen Names Mutant Ninja Turtles, like the five of us that were in this group. And that was the first time I saw it, and I did see it maybe three or four times with my parents. God bless them. <laughs> because they didn't enjoy it as much as I did after that. Yeah, 100%. This is a film that if you were growing up in the 80s and early 90s, it may as well have been a part of your diet. It was part of, it was like a food group, right? Because even once it yeah. came out on video and you remember it was a family home entertainment, the little F H E logo that would scroll yes. across the front. Everyone had that videotape and everyone knew when that little F H E popped up that you were in for a good time. Sleepovers, babysittings, like this was always on. Yeah. And this was a movie, again, coming out after the cartoon. Turtle Mania was huge at this point. And this is the movie that I don't think anybody expected what it was going to be walking into it. And within the first 10 minutes, as a kid, you knew you were in for something different. It wasn't your average kid's movie. This one had kids and parents guessing on what in the hell we actually walked into. Within the first 10 <laughs> minutes, you have Raphael uh, saying a swear word with the Turtles logo up. Yeah. So this was almost a taboo kind of movie for kids. Their first introduction almost to their first mild adult movie. So there you have the turtle element and you have this dark and gritty Ninja Turtles movie that contrasts the cartoon, which it was all the elements that just combined into an, uh, ex just an experience for kids. I mean, so I like to put it this way. You know, this wasn't the very first toy license that came out as a live action movie. Uh, you know, we did have G.I. Joe the movie and Transformers and My Little Pony and Care Bears. We had all those animated films. But I think the film that I got to see in the theater several times, which I still have like a guilty pleasure love for, that was a real live action property was Masters of the Universe. And that was like 87, I think. But that did not fare well financially or critically because it was late. You know, the heyday of Masters of the Universe was like 83, 84. By the time 87 rolls around, kids are done with Masters of the Universe. So that was oops on canon, you know? Well, there was lots of oopses on canon. But they were just too late. This was right at the exact time it needed to happen. We had just had Batman 89 the year before. So the world was becoming ready for a darker, more adult, gritty, thematic character like this. You know, they took the silly Batman from the 1960s with Adam West or the way he was portrayed in comics and really went into the graphic novels of the 80s by Frank Miller and made it dark and moody and mysterious. And with this one, I got to say, I think that the creative team, Jim Henson, behind the puppetry and the costumes and the suits and Steve Barron and the screenwriters, they found a perfect medium where they could bring that grittiness and rawness and dirtiness that Batman brought, but still bring enough of the marketability of the cartoon and toy line and kind of find a perfect mesh. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And prior to that, I mean, this movie was slated to actually come out before the cartoon and we look at Masters of the Universe, 87, 87, Howard the Duck. A lot of elements just kind of stopped this movie from being produced. And thank God for that, because we could have gotten a completely different movie if that would have happened, and we wouldn't have gotten the love of the cartoon that we've gotten. The cartoon set the expectation, and it didn't disappoint when this movie came out with that different output, that different vision it prepared the characters for something to be on the big screen. It's like what I've said before is when you take a IP and put it to the big screen, you have to add something different. And these filmmakers did that. And they did that with such a tiny budget. They did so with such obstacles in their way. And it was the pitch perfect crescendo to a lot of kids' imaginations. And there's adults that loved it too. You know, that there was yeah. something for everybody and bringing in certain character actors into the film, but also just really kind of not glamorizing the film and the actors in it, I think is what made it even more special. April O'Neil in the cartoon was like every little boy's 
crush and dream. Like if you were my age, it was The Little Mermaid and April O'Neil. To this day, I feel that's why I have a thing for redheads is because of those two, right? Roger Rabbit. You forgot Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh, Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit. Got to put mm-hmm. that in yep. there too. But in this film, they made everyone look like real New Yorkers. I think the authenticity of how they cast their characters is one of the things that made critics really critical about it because they were like, well, what are you doing? Like, this is a kid's movie. Why are you making it so adult? Why are you trying to make it appeal to older audiences by making these people look real and they're sweaty and they're grimy and New York is grimy. It's disgusting. Where I think people like Siskel and Ebert and a lot of the other critics of the day were expecting you know, art deco buildings and crystal clear skylines. And instead we did get something more in line with, let's say an 80s slasher movie when it comes to the aesthetic. I love that description of the 80s slasher movie because that exactly goes through my head when I look at the cinematography of it all and the setting. It reminds me of almost like Jason go- takes Manhattan. Almost. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. And It's interesting to me that they didn't go the safe route and made this an animated movie, which they could have easily done because that would have been the safe thing. The cartoon already planted the the seed for the movie. But there's a level of respect that I have for making this in the uh, early 90s, late 80s, um, when it started production, is to make this and take the risk of make this gritty. And because of that, no studio wanted to touch it. But at the same time, if we would have gotten something different, it wouldn't have been as memorable as what we got, mainly because of the visuals, mainly because mm-hmm. of the cast. And some of the cast didn't even t- take off drastically after this movie, but those roles are iconic and they're memorable. And it's one of those that will stay with youth. And like you said, even adults, there is something for everybody in this movie. Um, the the action, the violence, it's never overdone, but the action element is still there to entertain. And you have a lot of fun dialogue that they don't skimp on. They keep that tradition of the characters alive, but just change the output of the settings. Well, how about this? You, you said that no studios would touch it. Yeah, no studios would touch it. So they did go with independent financing, mostly from China. It was Chinese production companies that did it. And I think it's very interesting because that's the same thing that they did with John Wick. Most of John Wick's original movies, like one and two, were all produced by China and foreign markets and then sold to a studio. This is what happened with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And because it was done independently, because it was done with such a minuscule budget, 13.5 is what this thing cost. At the end of the day, its gross worldwide was $202 million. And up until 1999's Blair Witch Project, it was the most financially successful independent film ever made. It held that record for almost a solid 10 years. So it did what it was supposed to do. It attracted audiences, both young and older. It made it cool for adults to like, let's say, uh, LPs, IPs, you know, it was okay to like a cartoon. It was okay to like a license because this wasn't made just for kids. It wasn't something that you were dragging them along to because you had to, to go see the newest animated toy movie just so they could buy a toy. And I think that's the other thing that's really cool about this is that the market for merchandise was already there. It didn't need to create a market of merchandise for the movie it was already there. If anything, the movie is merchandise for the property. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, at some points they did try and take, uh, shove some figures to the market and stuff like that. But you don't see a lot, you didn't see a lot of push. I didn't see a lot of fast food integration. I didn't see a lot right. of um, outside marketing for it. And there is a Domino's placement in it that I'm sure we'll talk about um, later in the show. But, there isn't a lot of that. And what I really like about just saying the phrase that this was one of the biggest independent movies uh, ever made at that time. Still is, almost, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, really. 
And it's almost music to my ears. And this set an example to a lot of those studios and a lot of those indie films and a lot of those branding films that almost ricocheted an energy back into some of these movies. When we see like Masters of the Universe or Howard the Duck or what it may be, um, a lot of those scared some studios. And this one almost revitalized that life into a lot of these movies. And not to just assume, but... I want to state that this movie did pave the way for a lot of those movies that we got in the early 90s um, to mid-90s that wouldn't have been made um, just because of studios not having the bravery to fork out the dough. But they overdid it in the 90s, and I think that's why did. we did see a drought of films like this later on. And we'll get to that as we kind of get towards the end of the conversation. So right now, let's talk about just the overall film as a film, because that's what we do. You know, your podcast you are critiquing movies and you're giving the people the reasons why or why not to go spend your hard-earned money in the theater and see a movie or wait till streaming or just skip it altogether. And I'm the one that, like, if I don't like a movie, I'm not bringing it to the show unless it's a very special episode where I bring someone who's particularly good at shit-talking a movie and then I'll shit-talk it with them. But that's, like, you know, every once in a while. For me, like, this film doesn't need my help. It's already a, a classic, not even a cult classic. So as a film, I think it plays extraordinarily well, even if it wasn't an IP, right? It, yeah. It's a good story. It's got good plot structure all the way through it. I would say that it avoids one of the cliches I typically hate in movies like this, and that's make disposable characters just for the sake of plot progression. It does introduce a few characters that are a point of the plot that drive the story forward but it gives you some time to be emotionally invested enough in them so whether or not something bad happens or something good happens they don't feel like they were brought in there just to move the plot along and then never be spoken of again and that's a tricky thing to do with a film like this well let's look at all the characters because the characters themselves are raw you have danny you have the father-son dynamic the conflict there you have the conflict of losing a family member, the bro Leonardo, or I'm sorry, Raphael, you or Splinter even. Yeah. There's family conflict. There's an overlaying layer of family conflict that flows through this movie, and it doesn't feel forced. And what I really loved about this movie is kind of taking onto the character topic is there's no goofy characters. There's no comic relief. There is nothing to just make this movie just stupid to give the mind a break. They treat this, these characters serious and they go all in on this family theme of conflict. Shredder's not the conflict. He's just the protagonist at the end that they have to battle. The conflict is really the family element to this and they focused on that, which I really liked. And this is what critics really missed in this movie. They couldn't get past the turtles, they couldn't get past these mm -hmm. ninja turtles, these, the ridiculous concept. The movie does have layers that really support the overall feel of emotion. And that's what I really dug about this. And film craft. Like, we don't talk about film craft that much anymore because hardly anyone is doing it, at least anyone that is on the scale that Hollywood is going to promote, right? Nowadays, almost all the Marvel movies are completely CG. They're all shot on green screens. The Star Wars series are doing some cool things by bringing back practical sets and models and creature effects and the HD projection screens in the background, which are essentially like their version of matte paintings. I, I see film craft starting to come back a little bit, but this era that we're in where CGI is in its infancy, and if they could afford it, it would be for like a few seconds of film, like in T2, like something like three minutes of CG for the entire movie, right? But everyone remembers it for its CG. We're talking about Jim Henson's Creature Shop making these animatronic face masks to go over these suits that have flesh and blood martial artists and performers and acrobats in. And we are seeing people that most people wouldn't understand their names, but if you know Jim Henson, Creature Shop, and Sesame Street puppetry, I don't think a lot of people know that Kevin Clash, Elmo himself, performed the Splinter Puppet, 
The Splinter puppet is Elmo. Elmo is Splinter. And that was a fact that blew my mind decades ago when I found that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the puppetry in this, you'll have mixed opinions on whether it's outdated or not. I don't think it's outdated, and especially at the time, it was top of the line. I mean, this looked great then, and in my personal opinion, I think it still looks great um, to an extent. So especially if you had the remastering edition, it looks fantastic. And you take a look, and I have to shout out Corey Feldman and as Donatello in this, by the way. Mm -hmm, 100%. Um, that probably the most famous at the time in the uh, during uh, out of all the cast. Um, but the puppetry on it is amazing and engaging. And we talk look at the craft. This when you put prosthetics on cast members this isn't an easy task and they made it absolutely believable um with the camera work this is where you really pay attention to that camera work and there is some real talent and real skill behind that camera that really complement these cast members when they're doing action scenes or even when they capture that emotion of the limited facial structure of the puppet and i do love the human characters you already talked about danny and his dad we got the police chief but the main two people that kind of help bring the story along, there's something, in my opinion, very Kurosawa-esque about this, where you've got April O'Neil and you've got Casey Jones, played by Elias Codius, as kind of like the two side characters that are actually the characters that are helping move the plot along. Because you need some kind of human to relate to, because otherwise you're going to, I'd say, start picking apart the inconsistencies of the turtles, whether it's the puppetry, whether it's the way the mouths move, whether it is the fact that they have a very limited amount of sensible dialogue because they have to be Ninja Turtles. They have to use the parlances. They have to use the surfer lingo. They have to use that 90s patois that the cartoon was so famous for. That had to be recognizable for kids. Otherwise, they weren't going to believe that these were their Ninja Turtles on screen. So what do you do? You create fascinating characters that already exist in that universe. Casey Jones and April O'Neil, and you have great actors like Judith Hogue and Elias Codius play these parts and bring so much chemistry. Like those two people have chemistry. Their time on screen together is very limited, but in that limited amount of time, there's like real strong senses of romance and sensuality between the two of them that aren't heavy enough to make it uneasy for kids in the audience, but at the same time, believable to know that they have an interest in each other and an interest in each other's survival, that it makes sense that they would stick together with these turtles for the rest of the movie, which is only 90 minutes long. The amount of things they do in that 90 minutes still, to me, is impressive. Yeah, and I think we're going to have our, our first disagreement here. So here it comes. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't like that romance between Casey and April. I thought that was a little unnecessary, um, especially since it really didn't go anywhere. It led up to that cliche kiss at the end, right? And there wasn't enough in there. And you spoke to the 90-minute uh, runtime. That I would have loved to see them build just kind of that overlaying theme of family, right, that we spoke to. That one almost contradicts a tad for me, especially when it leads to nowhere. Um, and the only intent is it having that cliche, all right, we did it kiss at the end, that heroic kiss. I would have loved to see a little bit more of Casey Jones, honestly, um, spend more time with the turtles to build that more, that build that relationship, build that relationship instead of just flirting with April O'Neil. I think the, I think the chemistry between all the characters are great, but I wish it wouldn't have gone that route because these performances are fantastic and they're entertaining. And most importantly, they're energetic. I would have tapped into that to really encourage that to interact with each other in a natural way, not a forced romance. I agree. But at the same time, this is the Turtles movie, right? So yeah. people, people aren't going to go in to tune in just to that relationship and we've talked about this uh, on my show and, and uh, other shows that we've both been on before, where the story that is deeper than what we see is oftentimes the most interesting, right? And I think that we see a character arc in Casey Jones. He represents that loner. 
he represents mental illness. He represents a type of uh, masculinity that most people are afraid of. And this is our chance to see him turn from that, I'm only going to take care of myself guy, right? I would never fall for some dame, right? We see that change. So even though it might be fleeting and it only leads up to that little, like you said, uh, stereotypical, we did it kiss at the end, we do see a full character arc there that I think is impressive because it's not his movie, but he gets his moment in the movie. And we can talk about this point now where this film did not get the sequels it deserved because it was too popular. It made too much money. And so now they actually had to listen to critics. They had to listen to parent groups. They had to listen to people who were doing surveys about what they think the turtle should be. And we got very sanitized versions in the sequels. I mean, in the next two movies, Leonardo couldn't even use his swords because it represented too much violence. So I think we are probably robbed of a deeper romantic connection and story between April and Casey because Casey's not even in the second movie. You know, like it's it's kind of ridiculous that they did kind of fall victim to public opinion and response from the parent groups instead of listening to what the dollars said that we liked this. But sadly, they went after more dollars and catered to the voices that honestly us kids at the time didn't care about. Yeah, 100%. Because I remember the topic of this movie because my parents used to talk about it. I just eavesdropped. This was a big deal when this came out. Uh, there was a lot of complaints about this movie and its violence, its language, its rawness that we spoke about. This wasn't what anybody was anticipating. And because of that, and because this was a huge topic of youth and what we're introducing our youth to, video games, music, what you name it. Right. And we were dealing movie, with the whole rap music and uh, yeah. parental guidance shit on CDs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they would just go down the list. And this is one of those movies why I'm so passionate about the censorship of movies. Because when you look at this movie, this movie is innocent enough. But when you go into the second one, which to an extent, there's some good moments in the second one. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mimic what the first one. And if you try to consider that a trilogy, I don't even consider that a trilogy because no. every single movie's tone is different and every character motivation is written bonkers. So there's no continuation of each of our characters in it. So there's no way it's a trilogy and just forget the third one. But the second one, it matches that cartoon that everybody told us we wanted to see. And right. that's not the case. Agreed 100%. So let's go to what our critics say about this. Now, there's going to be movies on this show where, hey, they gave him two thumbs up. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of thumbs up that they gave that I don't agree with personally. There's a lot of thumbs downs that you and I don't agree with personally. And that's fine. It's totally like we always say, art is subjected, subjective, film is subjective. And I'm not here to like, piss on what their reviews are. I'm going to say that as we go through this one especially, I've got some serious hesitancies when it comes to what they decided to pick on as opposed to the things that we just talked about, which I think are successful when it comes to cinematic. So this was mostly Gene's uh, to run with. He is the one that kind of introduced this in that episode. He's the one that gives the basic review um, Roger had his own review in his newspaper, but he does have some quips about it. So it's interesting as he says this, where he says, There isn't a whole lot on the screen to recommend this movie, however, which is basically a brainless action picture mixed with music video sequences. In the movie, the four crime-fighting turtles are turned into erect, human-sized creatures after they've been doused with a toxic waste. Their guru is a giant rat. Lots of jokes involve the turtle's love of pizza, which enables the filmmakers to insert not-too-subtle advertising plugs for a nationwide pizza delivery chain. I mean, the first thing that he really criticizes is the fact that there is product placement in the film, as if no film's ever had product placement before. But why that? 
Yeah, and that's one thing with Gene is that he nitpicks a lot of those things. Yeah. And when it comes to the 80s, there's a ton of product placement. This one had one memorable scene of product placement, and it's odd to me that he picks this one because this one ended up being a super memorable line and a memorable scene, a well-shot scene. It didn't take away anything from it. So it's almost like an attack on the brand thinking it's a, I have no problem with them nitpicking uh, or a critic nitpicking product placement if it does interrupt a scene, if it does make it blatantly obvious that there's nothing that's going to benefit from this product placement in it. But this right. actually was a fantastic scene and it actually drove to a great conversation between Donatello and Michelangelo. So I thought it was a well-written scene and a funny scene. I mean, and that's the other thing too, is like, think about the specificness of dominoes in the 80s that whole scene plays out that if it's under 30 minutes it's free or they get a discount right that was domino's whole thing when it was a big chain now you're lucky if you get your pizza in an hour but when it was first around and it had very limited delivery space their guarantee is that it got there in a certain amount of time so the fact that they made a scene out of that makes sense that they use domino's as the pizza product placement because the funny thing to me is that in the cartoon, there really wasn't a specific pizza that they liked. It was just pizza. But in the video games, it was Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut had the marketing for the video games. And in the movie, it's Domino's. So I, again, like I said, that's an interesting one to nitpick. But my biggest complaint and nitpick about his critique is the fact that he's criticizing the music video quality and style of its action sequences, that it had a music video director, that it felt too much like a music video. I, I mean, there are so many filmmakers that cut their teeth in music videos that make their films exactly how their music videos were stylized and energized, and they didn't seem to have an issue with that in a lot of those directors' works. So again, I this is a nitpicky thing that, in my opinion, was just like this was a stinger moment. This was something that he wanted people to either read or see and be like, yeah, music videos, MTV, all that kind of stuff working its way into our movies. It's kind of propaganda. hundred <laughs> percent. Absolutely. Because if we look at this movie, uh, especially when they're out on the barn, there is a hundred different amazing shots that it's not hyperactive. It's not hard cut, hard cut, hard cut. They have rap music in it. And that's what he's going to relate it to is. And I think he's zeroing in on that one scene where we have the underground, uh, almost pleasure Island, but Pinocchio feel where all the kids come and they're can't do no wrong. They're playing video games. They're not going to school. And there's a big, thick rap soundtrack to this scene. And you look at that and it's almost like a distaste for adults at that time and era where it promotes a lot of this rebellion yeah. um, in the current 90s. And Gene has, if you we boil it down a lot of his reviews, he has a real problem with the ongoing theme of this rebellion or this rap music. And it is, like you said, brilliantly brilliantly said it is propaganda to an extent because he doesn't give the review and he doesn't answer the question of why it doesn't work. But at the same time, I often respect them when they do stuff like this, because it kind of showed that they were not in anyone's pocket, right? Like yeah. you couldn't say this was like a payola thing of where studios were, you know, giving critics money or, uh, certain kinds of, of under the table deals to give them a good review. Cause let's realize that this is a time where we didn't have audience aggregators. We didn't have scores. We didn't have Amazon reviews. Siskel and Ebert, Vincent Camby, Gene Shalit, Leonard Moulton. These guys could make or break a film's box office with 500 words. Like it really was. That's what it was. Like I remember growing up and my mom reading the reviews in the newspaper to determine whether or not we were going to go see one movie or another. It's like, oh, they only gave it three stars. Maybe we'll go see it at the Dollar Theater. That was everybody back in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. And to the point of art is subjective, right? 
there's a lot of personal taste that goes into it. And to his respect, yeah, that's his personal taste to it is he sees something on screen that he doesn't like. He had the same problem with children in peril in film. He didn't mm-hmm. like that either. And there's a lot of things that even when I go to a movie, there's certain things that I dislike, but I have to look past it as well. Um, but with certain things, and again, at that time, that was the hot topic uh, during that time for him to really point out. The other thing that he says about this, and I find this an interesting critique as well. He says that he isn't a huge fan that how these turtles only pay lip service to ninja teachings. I don't know what all the excitement is about. The four turtles have mostly interchangeable characters. They set about their boring task of conquering dull villains. The turtles talk like surfers, guzzle pizza, and pay only lip service to ninja teachings. I suppose they pay only lip service if turtles have lips. I didn't like the picture, and I hope this isn't a case of kids just settling for something familiar. Actually, I think it is. The movies ought to be a much more magical experience than this. That's why I hate those countless product plugs. Why have kids be reminded of the world in which they spend all of their days? Yeah, and why, why would a pizza company want to advertise that it's the pizza preferred by turtles who live in sewers? I learned more about ninjutsu from this movie than I think any other movie except for maybe Jim Kata by that time. <laughs> yeah, and we... Not everything has to be bright and sunny by the end of the day. Not every movie has to have that moral lesson. This is, you can look at all the kids' movies now, not to fast forward, but there's hardly any moral fiber to a lot of these movies other than spending time with your kids counting fart jokes. So (laughs) when we look at now, if that movie were to come out today, this would have been no big deal because. Again, this is where the critics miss the moral overlaying message of the family element. There is a message to it, but they couldn't they can't get past that one element of the violence, that the rap music, the fighting turtles. There's a lot of just stone wall that parents and adults at that time that they can't get through. But when it comes to that uh, opinion of it, Yeah, there is no real moral lesson that is just, bam, right in your face. And that was, I think, the intent of the movie is to give that message but not be in your face so the kids can still enjoy their ninja fighting turtles. What do you expect you're going to see when you go to a movie called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Ninja Turtles. (laughs) Right. God. They also, like, talk some shit about how the turtles speak and the surfer lingo and the stuff that we talked about. And I don't expect these two middle-aged guys to have watched one episode of the cartoon before going into this review. But Ebert had a very interesting take, too, on this, about the video game. Do you want to cover this part? (laughs) Yeah, and this is where I kind of... I had to read the review over and over again, and I watched the review over and over again. This man, my man, Roger Ebert, (laughs) was obsessed with the Ninja Turtles video game. And because of this, in his review, he almost skips over where the turtles came from. He skips over the TV show. He skips over the comic, et cetera, et cetera. What you have here is marketing carried to the ultimate degree. Now, you you mentioned the Saturday morning TV show. You didn't mention... The Nintendo game, which is oh, one see, of the top-selling Nintendo games in the country, and I played it for our Christmas gift guide last December until it drove me crazy, these little turtles running around and doing their flip-flops. And actually, the visuals in this movie look a lot like not only the TV show, but also like the video game. And so kids have already been brainwashed to the point where they've got to see this movie. That's why it opened so strongly. They had to be taken to see this movie. And I guess they liked it. I don't know. Maybe they're not that critical when they're five years old. But you're right. It's kind of a dark, brooding, kind of depressing-looking movie. And even though I admired the set decoration, I thought they did a good job right. of making those sewers, uh, it didn't have the bright and bouncy feeling that you'd like to think that kids would enjoy when they're that age. Truth be told, he was obsessed with the Ninja Turtles video game that he played for days on end until he had to cut himself off. And it <laughs> leaked into this review, and that's the primary topic of his comparison is to this video game. At one point, he even said that the images he saw on screen reminded him of the images he sees on the video game. And that's where I have a a little bit of a disconnect from this review is because I don't understand that connection between the video game and what we saw on screen in which he compared it to 
Batman. He compared it to 1927's Metropolis. Mm -hmm. So the two is almost a contradiction. Agreed. When we look at the Batman piece of it, where it comes to that goth, which they said they liked, but at the same time, they they question if our kids are going to be engaged in this dark goth tone. But the success of Batman, truth be told, they are. And both of these IPs came from a comic book. There's also something that he says that I find is really interesting about how he feels that the only reason why this film had the success that it did was because children were brainwashed by the toys and by the cartoon to drag their parents to go see this movie. Um, I mean, that's any cartoon. That's anything. That's any Disney film. I mean, why do you think there are Disneyland adults? Why do you think there's adults that go to Disneyland by themselves without kids and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on lightsabers and stuff like that? Josh Scar talking smack. But (laughs) this this is a very weak point to make, in my opinion, because this is just good business, you know? And this is the business that they themselves have built businesses upon you know so go ahead and say that okay children are brainwashed and that's the only reason why the movie is making 10 times or more its budget back in 1990 but there's enough movies that were shitty that were based on more popular ips and franchises just in the next couple years that totally contradicts that point that he's trying to make and again, that is, to me, that is two older men trying to make sense of something that did not exist when they were at this age. They weren't making toy movies when they were coming up in the world or when they were cutting their teeth in, in journalism for cinema. So this, I have to remember, was new. This was new to these critics who had already been doing this for 20 years. So the only way that they could possibly make sense of why it was making so much money is brainwash. The TV is sending subliminal messages to your children and they're saying, go see this movie. I get it. It's the same way that people thought that cars weren't going to be a big thing because why would you take a car when a carriage and a horse are just fine? Like I get the synonymous nature between those two points. Yeah. And these these guys are brilliant. They will always be brilliant in my mind. Yeah. But I think they miss the mark when it comes to there are toys on the market for a reason. Yes, there's a business, but it also encourages creativity, imagination to play. And when you see your favorite characters on a big screen, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go home and they're going to play. They're they're going to want these toys. Yes, but there is nothing wrong with that. Kids want toys. They want to play with toys. They want to see those toys do something special on the big screen. That's why it's important for kids to go see movies. And these two can't talk about a lot of these branding, these IPs come to the big screen because they both gave positive reviews to Superman. You think Superman (laughs) sold more comic books after the movie came out, absolutely. More action figures, absolutely. So their contradiction to place blame on something that they don't understand, it's a mute point because they're, again, missing the overlying, overlaying theme. And to Roger Ebert's point in his, re- in his review, video review is he didn't research a lot of the production um, prior to his review, which is odd to me because I think he did. Because... Yeah. It's very odd that with bringing up the production, as we talk about, when he brings it up in his review, which it's not a necessary point to make, because if I was a journalist, this is where I would have deep dived into these characters to truly understand, instead of repeating to the public, I don't get it. Right. I agree 100%. So let's look at the films that they had to watch and review in this exact same episode in March of 1990. So the films that were in this episode were I Love You to Death, which is a great romantic comedy, but kind of underrated. Kevin Kline, uh, Tracy Ullman in a great performance. Cry Baby, John Waters, Johnny Depp, 1990. Okay, cult classic, maybe not as relevant back then as it is now. The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Serious adult drama, NC-17, 
kind of hot, kind of heavy. And then Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which again, now it's a cult classic, super meta when it comes to the idea of getting your killings recognized by the media, you know, becoming more of a, a an idea, an iconic figure in media, and that's why you're doing your killings. Those are some really heavy-hitting films to try and put up against Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It feels like it doesn't even belong in that list. So I get it. If these are the films that they had watched in the couple weeks prior to this episode and them busting out their 500 words in their respective newspapers, I can see how there might be a little bit of confirmation bias of, of Ninja Turtles, the kid movie, the you know licensed movie, the toy movie, as opposed to these films, which are, in my opinion, three of the four are modern day classics. Yeah. And I can totally get, totally get that aspect of it because even when I talk to you about it, there are some movies I do have to see over again. If I'm having a stellar week and I just am super grumpy on a movie and I, I have to think about it and give it another shot because by comparison, when you're seeing movies back to back, it's hard to separate the two and by human nature and just your psyche, you are, automatically going to compare to the previous thing you saw or the previous things you saw. And that lineup is a, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a unique lineup and that is a hard movie to go against a lot of uh, this show. So uh, that show is one of the more interesting ones because you throw in a Ninja Turtles mix into that and you're, you're trying to climb uphill and that one Mm -hmm. I think did get a, a little fair almost like they skated by it with an assumption. Because even Ebert's review, he wasn't skipping into the theater wanting to see this movie. He says it right there in his review. (laughs) So, And I do appreciate that honesty um, of saying that he wasn't looking forward to it. And when you put movies like that against it, you're pretty much set up for failure. And that could be a big piece of how hard it is to criticize all the movies fairly. You nailed it right on the head because like we were talking about the gut reactions of an initial viewing of a movie. And when I I listen to your show every week, I've heard your antagonistic feeling to one or two of the films bleed into a review that you would normally be glowing about, but you're so toxified by how much you despise a theatrical experience that it sometimes, I'm not saying affects your presentation of the film and how happy you are that it was a great movie and you didn't waste your time. But I've also listened to the episodes where you've had like three bangers in a row and you just are like bouncing off of clouds because you're in such a great space of, I get to write fun stuff for a change. This is one of the things that I have gone back and I've looked at some of his reviews because when he does these reviews and his paper reviews, like I said, they're gut instinct, instant reactionary feelings towards these films. But then when you go back and you read his books where he's had time to ruminate on stuff, for example, I hate, 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 hate this movie. You can tell that he really has a lot more sincerity in how much he despised these films. Some of them, he actually gave worse reviews than when he initially did it in the paper because he had time to even pick them apart even more. So it showed that he did have the ability and the desire to dissect a film a little bit more. But in his case, it was usually for the more negative side than it was the complimentary. So I don't know. Maybe this is something that if he had like reviewed 10 or 20 years later, because there are some reviews that he took back, you know, he like retconned. He's like, actually, yeah, I was kind of wrong back then. But with Ninja Turtles, they were both pretty consistent on their opinion that it just wasn't for them. Yeah. And in fairness to Roger Ebert is he didn't in his written review, he didn't give it that bad of a review. <laughs> no, as he did. A lot of credits <laughs> did. Um, I had to go back and look at it cause I remember his video review, but I couldn't remember his actual rating and it was pretty generous uh, given what I thought it would be compared to even the second one. But Uh, It's like what he says in his review. The movie is not as bad as what people think. And it's probably the best possible Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie they're going to make, or it could have been. And he's right. So this one was the best one. 
Um, but I think his words came out so bold um, in terms of comparison, especially to the video game, that it was just a little misguided. But at least the rating, I don't necessarily disagree with, but I wouldn't have given it that. Agreed. So now we're going to come to the point of the show where we're going to rate the reviews. We are not going to tell you what we rate these films on this podcast. If you're interested in our true critique and ratings, you can go to our Letterboxd. Both of the links to those Letterboxd are on all social medias. They're on uh, themoviewire.com. They're on thecultworthy.com. You can find what we really think and read more about our reviews and opinions of the films in our Letterboxd. But on the show, we are just going to essentially critique the critique. Now, Justin and I both operate on a different style of how we rate things. You're a big fan of the star system. Yes. So I love the star system. Explain why. It's really simplistic to the point. You have the five stars and each star is going to represent an element of the movies. I like the even number. It's two for good. It's four for outstanding. And you can boil it down to mainly the story and how the story is supported based on four stars. So at the end of the roll time, you can know if a story is successful without going to the fifth star or the letter yeah. ratings of trying to see if all the elements work. You know by the end of the runtime if the story worked because if it does, all the elements worked. And I'm a big fan of the Entertainment Weekly, Owen Gleiberman style of the letter rating, A, B, B minus, C plus, um, I just think it makes a lot more sense than giving something a numerical value or a symbolic value. That's just for me. And I think that's probably because I read Entertainment Weekly from age 10 to age 30. I had a subscription for 20 years. I still got them in a box downstairs. It's kind of how I started critiquing reviewers like Lisa Schwartzbaum and Owen Gleiberman. So I'm a big fan of letter, letter reading. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I give Siskel, who's my critic, the one that I'm supposed to be critiquing in this show, I'm giving his critique a D. And I give it a D because it doesn't say enough about the film. It focuses too much on the, like we said, hit words. Propaganda, product placement, lingo, toy lines. And it doesn't really pay enough attention to the filmmaking, the performances. It doesn't even mention the performances. He is so focused on the aesthetics and so focused on the things that he thinks are put in there just to make this one long music video and commercial that he forgets that he's critiquing a film. I think he's critiquing a property. And that's where I'm not a huge fan of this particular review. He could have said thumbs down and he could have given me all the reasons why because what he did doesn't convince me that it was a film that needs to be reconsidered, whether it's good or bad. It really just gives me these hit words and these really easy catchphrases that, to me, are glossing over what the film really should have been critiqued on. Yeah, and for Ebert's review, I'm going to be a little higher than that, mainly because he did give some reasons why. Um, I'm going to give him a C minus, and this is kind of the reason why is he actually recognizes the set design. He recognizes the rawness, but with everything that you said, he compares it to one, a video game and one, he doesn't give a lot of examples of why it isn't, why it doesn't work. He mainly targets it towards the, this is what we're subjecting our kids to the kids. Yeah. Are we? taking our kids to this dark, gritty tone. It's almost reading like a complaint of today's generation and the movies we're subjecting our kids to, not the actual movie in itself of what worked, what didn't. And what really kind of put the nail in the coffin reading his review is the fact that it really doesn't take it serious enough to recognize the movie. I think the last line of his review is turtle is a funny word. And I think that <laughs> is the most entertaining piece of his review in this one um, is that little sly humor. And that humor is exactly what the movie actually includes, but he doesn't even recognize that either. I get it. I agree with you on that one. And 
I feel this is my personal opinion that Ebert did his homework a little bit more than Gene did. I would agree with that. I mean, at least he played the video game. I can't imagine at least he played Gene the video playing game. the video game. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, this was a fantastic conversation. What a great way to just roll out episode one with this film and, you know, kind of starting at as pretty much of a negative review that either of these guys could give a film because we can just work our way up from there. And I think with each episode we're, we're going to do, we're going to understand these guys a lot more than we think we have in all the decades that we've been reading their stuff. Yeah, it's like unboxing a new treasure and just revisiting some old friends. And there's a lot to learn from these two guys that I would recommend not just listening to our show, but taking a read uh, or but taking a listen to their show, watch their show and read their reviews. Uh, but I think what we're going to bring to the table is actually going to be something fantastic to give snippets of how great these reviewers are and how strong opinions matter in film. Absolutely. So that is episode one, everybody. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Our film next week is going to be my first pick of this new podcast. We're going to be doing Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Philip Kaufman. I'm not even going to tell you my opinion of the film. You're going to have to wait till next week. But if you haven't seen that movie, go find it. Go buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray. You'll see it online. It's very watchable. I think it's even on Tubi right now. So you are ready and prepped for that episode. Once again, I'm Antonio Palacios, host of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast, here with my co-host, Justin Henson of the Movie Wire Podcast. You can find our links on both our websites. I'm on thecultworthy.com. Justin's on themoviewire.com. Justin, it was a pleasure. I can't wait to do this again. I will see you next week. See you next week.